and welcome to the Tebby Podcast. I'm Robin Powell, the editor of the investing and personal finance blog, The Evidence-Based Investor. This podcast is brought to you by Regis Media, a boutique provider of content and social media management for evidence-based financial advice and planning firms. We're going to devote this episode to the issue of excessive executive pay. Why is it such a problem? What can be done about it? Why can't fund managers exert more of an influence over company boards when it comes to remuneration? And what about pay in the asset management industry itself? Why is it so high? And again, will we see pay come down? I've been speaking to two people about this. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Luke Hildyard at the High Pay Centre. But first, let's gauge the views of Corin Carr, founder of PeopleNet, a London-based consultancy which specialises in responsible pay, or responsible reward, as Corin prefers to call it. I began by asking her how she became interested in this particular subject. I started my um, my career back in the early 90s um, in-house actually working for a major global bank in human resources and more specifically in uh, a sub-function which is called compensation and benefits, which is where um, we look at how and how much people are paid internally. Um, and in uh, in 98, actually, so my business is over 20 years old now, I set up independently uh, very much working with banks, asset managers, insurance companies and corporates on designing plans for to, to pay people and more specifically assess how and how much they should be paid. Almost every day it seems, Corinne, we're hearing about uh, AGMs of big companies uh, uh, all around the world really and um, very often top of that agenda is executive pay. Often shareholders increasingly uh, seem to be reluctant to vote through these sort of very large pay deals. Um, What are your thoughts on that? So you're you're absolutely right, Robin. Um, Executive pay is a subject that's that's ongoing. It's been so for a a number of years now. And yes, we are kept busy every year with uh, a, a different focus on executive pay and different companies that come up on the radar. Uh, I mean, two. there are usually two main topics that come up. One is that executives are paid too much. And the other one is that we don't really understand how they are paid and sometimes they don't understand how they are paid. So the whole um, issue of quantum and complexity is one that keeps coming up um, year after year. Uh, you know, how much people are paid is a very subjective topic. Uh, you've got people who are paid a lot of money, sometimes for very little uh, correlation with what they're actually doing just by uh, forces, market forces. But, you know, there are a number of uh, um, influential people out there who um, actually, you know, deserve what they're being paid. So it's really being able to differentiate between the ones that were just lucky uh, with the ones that actually worked hard for their money. Um, as to complexity, um, there's been uh, an ongoing debate for a, a few years now on whether you know LTIPS should be based on restricted shares or uh, performance-related 
shares and uh, there are different views amongst uh, investors as to you know, the preferred option and in fact what you tend to see is that it very much depends on uh, which firm we're talking about. Uh, very unlikely that um, you know if LTIPs continue to pay out a firm is going to suddenly change them to replace them with restricted shares. On the other hand do you really want to guarantee half of their usual you know, LTIP payout if there is no relation to um, performance. So I'm, my, my conclusion is really just um, be careful about what you're asking for because you might end up with something that doesn't fit your initial um, objective. Now, of course, uh, the biggest shareholders at these uh, companies are usually asset managers. And this whole responsible pay business is increasingly seen as an important part of the governance that, that asset managers uh, are, are responsible for. Um, in your experience, what impact have asset managers uh, had on company boards regarding executive pay? So it very much depends on which asset manager we're talking about. Um, my overall view is probably not enough not enough impact. Yes, we've seen, you know, examples and we know who they are, where you know, 110 million was too much, but 70 million was okay to vote through. I think that might actually be quite um, unacceptable to the man on the street, but for some reason that was, you know, accepted by the, the investment community. So I think that the parameters are sometimes misunderstood between you know, real people whose money it is that we are investing and what's mm. acceptable at the, at the executive um, level. Um, interestingly, um, a very large proportion, I think it's about 95% of remuneration policies are being voted in favor of. So we might not like them when they are being implemented. However, mm. you know, every three years, investors get a chance to um, to vote these uh, for or against these remuneration policies, and overwhelmingly they are voting in favour of those policies. So it's very difficult to then, you know, just vote against their implementation. But uh, the the asset managers ha have the most votes, if you like, because they are the biggest shareholders. Um, and and it's been suggested that that part of the problem here. Uh, with uh, you know what, what some would see as the as the failure to get to grips with soaring executive pay um, is that asset managers you know who are supposed to be policing this if you like are themselves very highly remunerated. What's your view on that? Um, it is indeed a, a systemic problem because the same asset manager will wear three different hats. They will be, you know, if they're a listed company, they will be in receipt of uh, investments themselves. So they are an investee company. They are an investor as well, investing people's money into investee companies. And they're also an employer. So that's what responsible pay does. It reconciles the three angles of the same organization. So it is very much systemic. Um, there seems to be a, a, a bit of a an angle which is, you know, do as I say, not do as I do. And the very few, and I can think of some um, very uh, strict investors, for instance, who will 
absolutely automatically vote against investee companies if they don't link their ESG strategy to their remuneration strategies. And investors should do exactly the same. We can't just you know, sign up and tell clients that ESG matters if we don't apply it ourselves to our own um, business strategy and remuneration strategy. Now, I, I realise that you're reluctant to express you know, personal opinions about levels of, of, of pay and so on. Uh, the, these uh, are very often, well, they, they are sub- subjective judgments, if you, if you like. Um, but in general terms, do, do you think asset manager pay is excessive relative to the value that they actually add? I think we need, we need to be able to explain whatever decisions and, and quantum we get to, to the average person. And I think I, I would say people find it difficult to understand how asset managers or some asset managers keep uh, receiving bonuses when the value of portfolios is, is static or going down even. Mm. So bonuses seem to be, you know, for the average person, they would understand that you get your bonus if you're going to do better than I can do myself at no cost. If there is a cost to managing their money and the performance of the, the person's portfolio is not increasing, then they, I think they will struggle to understand why those people should be getting bonuses. Isn't part of the problem here, though, that um, in, in most walks of life, you can actually identify skill and, and you can clearly obviously identify hard work, somebody who is you know, really putting in the hours, really putting in the effort and, and so on. Um, but but with, with, with asset management, you know, as the academics uh, will say, uh, it's almost impossible to distinguish uh, skill from just simple luck. That has implications for remuneration as well, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it does. And um, people will, you know, hope, hopefully look at the valuations they are getting. So, you know, if I've got my own pension invested with a, one of the top uh, investment firms. Uh, you get your quarterly valuation and you kind of, uh, you know, if you're that way minded, look at whether the numbers go up and down. I think asset managers are very conflicted with the fact that they have to report on a quarterly basis when their own remuneration structures are actually aligned to annual cycles or even multi-year cycles. And and it's not an easy position to reconcile. So I feel, you know, that dilemma is something that really needs to be looked at. It's, it's the difference between reporting and uh, alignment of the, the remuneration strategy uh, time horizon. So whether it's luck or hard work is very difficult to determine from a client's point of view. You just look at the bottom number and you look at whether it's gone up and down and it's basically based on trust. That's what financial services mm. is about, it's trust. So what reforms would you like to see then to asset manager pay? Well, when we look at um, responsible pay, responsible pay affects all the actors in the investment chain. So that's starting with the asset owners who um, you sometimes or most often use the services of investment consultants to select their asset managers. 
who in turn invest into corporations. So it affects asset owners, investment consultants, asset managers, and then corporates. But the asset owners definitely have, I mean, they are the ones whose duty it is to, to manage the beneficiaries' monies in a responsible way. So they have to have the um, power and the understanding that there is a link to investment performance and how people are being paid. So that's one thing I'd like to see is more involvement from the asset owners. Um, but as I say, we need to look as well as the alignment between the reporting and the performance monitoring. So we have people, asset managers, who have to report on a quarterly basis when their pay is calculated on an annual or multi-year basis. And that dilemma needs to be looked at. Would you like to see the Investment Association, the, the, the UK uh, fund industry trade body, taking more of a, of a, of a lead on this? And, 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 and what about uh, the regulators, the Financial Conduct Authority uh, and, and, and politicians, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually wrote uh, a report on responsible um, reward called uh, Responsible Reward, How to Fulfill Your ESG Promises Through Performance and Pay. Uh, and then can, that can be downloaded from um, the www.peoplenet.ltd.uk for free. And that report was sent to the IA, so I can't wait for their thoughts on the report. But they definitely have a role to play. Um, they have issued their remuneration principles. And I, I would say, I'm not sure they go far enough, really, when we look at the integration of extra financial factors into pay. I mean, it very much says, you know, you may consider ESG factors in um, remuneration structures of your investee companies. I think it's not a may, it's a must. Mm. It's absolutely paramount that there is that integration of extra financial factors, both from a, a societal and a commercial a business point of view. So yes, they do have a role to play. Um, as to regulators, they already understand they have to role to play because the, the FCA has um, issued their stance on um, culture and conduct. Um, I'm working with clients at the moment on the implementation of the SMCR uh, regulation. That's the Senior Managers and Certification Regime, which definitely looks at conduct and culture. Um, and of course, we've got the new governance code which came out and we're waiting for the new stewardship code which um, i'm sure will reflect what's in the governance code so the regulators are already on board with that concept now we need to make sure that um, responsible pay is pushed through at board level um, and within remuneration committees I understand, uh, Corinne, that you were recently invited to share your views on the Women in Finance Charter at a Treasury Select Committee session. Tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so politicians as well, they, they've, got a, you know, they've got a role to play. Um, and we know that because you've got um, initiatives like the, you know, the, the Paris, the Climate uh, Agreement, for instance, uh, social issues, social initiatives like the Women in Finance Charter, which is about increasing the number of women in senior roles. Um, and it's got about three over 300 signatories now in the, in, in the city and represents thousands of um, employees in, um, across the country. 
And the reason I was invited to um, Parliament uh, TV to discuss this uh, initiative was that the select committee was looking at the implementation of the charter, what had been achieved over the last 12 months and what needed to be done uh, further. What I thought was really interesting, with my particular focus on remuneration, um, there is a pledge in the Charter which employers have signed up to, which is about the linkage of diversity targets and executive pay. And I partner with another firm called eReward, and we analyse remuneration reports. And we can clearly see that the linkage between diversity targets and executive pay is actually pretty low. Mm. Um, we could see that uh, you know a number of firms talk about diversity in their annual reports. Some of them mention it in their remuneration report. Very few mention it as um, a, a clear target with a clear weighting of their bonus or the active attached to it. If we don't make that connection, that issue of diversity um, at senior levels is unlikely to make fast progress. And that's what the, the TV reporting was about. You've also been involved, Corinne, in the drawing up of the UN Principles for Responsible Investment, the PRI. So can you tell me about those principles and, and, and how you've been involved? Okay, so I wasn't exactly involved in uh, drawing the principles, but I certainly worked closely with the PI on a, a number of um, various uh, pieces of work. So, in something that's um, so most members, so the PI has got over two thousand members now globally, and has issued six principles, which are you know well known by investors, um, I would say, and asset owners. What is less known is that the PI issued a few years ago three executive pay recommendations to their members. One of them is to identify ESG um, metrics in their investee companies. The second one is to link them to executive pay. And the third one is to disclose the practices and challenges that these companies are experiencing. Um, when I talk to investors and indeed corporates, they are not asking or not being asked questions about the linkage between ESG and executive pay, or not enough and not systematically. So it's very important for PRI members to understand that it is um, an expectation that they should be looking at that. I have spoken at uh, PRI conferences in the past on, on this particular subject. Interestingly, the PRI has just commissioned a very extensive piece of work on responsible pay, which will be an international project. So they are in the process of identifying which academic institution will support them in that, that venture. But, you know, I've been pushing that issue. I've been asking them to look at their uh, framework, their reporting framework on executive pay. Because when we look at the um, public data from the PRI, under 20% of members, PI uh, subscribers, self-report that they are making the linkage between responsible pay, investment performance and executive pay. That's on a self-reported basis. So the reality is probably even lower than that. 
if that's not what people are being paid for, what are they being paid for mm. is the question. Mm. Uh, just one final question uh, for you, Corinne. Um, we, we sometimes see these reports about the link between high pay and productivity and uh, business success, if you like. Well, what is your assessment of the the evidence about whether or not there is a, a definite and, and a positive link between high pay and a business being successful? Well, I think it should be the other way around, really, which is mm. if your business is successful, then that should be linking to your, you know, if your incentives have been designed uh, properly, then they should derive from the success of your business. But what is success is the interesting question. And success is not just about measuring how much profit you've made, it's how you've made the money. And again, that's what responsible pay does. It doesn't look at just how much you're making, but how you're making the the money. What is the impact on the environment? What is the impact on the internal and external communities you're working with? Um, have you been a good corporate citizen? Should we be looking at some of the you know issues that are happening uh, internally and take that into consideration when determining your variable pay? So that's the question really. What is success and how do you measure it? You're listening to the Tebby podcast with me, Robin Powell, brought to you by Regis Media. That was Corinne Carr from PeopleNet talking about responsible pay. Now, another organisation with a strong interest in this area is the High Pay Centre. Based in London, the centre is a think tank which carries out research and analysis on issues relating to executive pay, corporate governance and business performance. I've been talking to Executive Director Luke Hildyard. I started by asking him about his own background. I came to work at the High Pay Centre. We're a small think tank doing research on the causes and consequences of economic inequality uh, a, a few years ago off the back of having done other research jobs in think tanks and local government. Uh, I think it's a, a, a really important issue. The UK is one of the most unequal countries in Western Europe. The 1%, the top 1%, the top 0.1% take uh, a much bigger slice of total incomes um, than they do in other countries, other advanced economies. And it's not as sort of simple as saying that, you know, if the 1% had less, the 99% would have more. But equally, I think if you want to um, raise living standards for people uh, and improve society, you have to look at the way that uh, income and wealth and economic power is distributed. And um, I think in the in the UK we could do a, a slightly better job of uh, of sharing things out uh, a little bit more more evenly. Uh, of course, one of the reasons that we are so um, unequal is that we have a very large financial services sector that um, that captures a, a big proportion of, of total pay in the UK. So, what exactly, in a nutshell, does the High Pay Centre do? Uh, so we carry out research, we review uh, companies' annual reports, we look at uh, the government statistics on income inequality, uh, on what people at the top earn, what people in the middle are getting, what people at the bottom are getting, and see how they compare. 
Uh, we make comparisons with international statistics, uh, and we write reports on our findings, make uh, policy recommendations uh, arising from what we find out in the in the research, and then we also have a programme of events. We do Twitter, uh, media commentary, that sort of thing. Now, I have the impression from you know what you have written and what others interested in this subject have written that this issue of excessive executive pay seems to be growing. It, you know, it, it, is that right? Uh, and and if so, why do you think it's happening? Whether or not it's right. Um, depends on you know, whose, whose figures you look at and over what time period. Certainly, um, if you compare executive pay levels today to 20 years ago, they're very, very high compared to uh, what, the, what the average worker used to, uh, used to make. There was big growth in the 2000s, the, the, uh, the, the noughties, as it were. And in the past decade, that growth has sort of leveled off a little bit so that, you know, you had pay for uh, a FTSE 100 chief executive going from being about uh, 50 or so times the average UK worker in the in the 1990s to more like 100, 150 times today. Um, but the, the growth has sort of slowed a little bit. I think, and why why has pay got to such huge levels? I think there are well, there, there are uh, a number of reasons. The sort of benign reasons, I suppose, is that uh, you know, companies are increasingly global in scale, uh, and increasingly an argument that um, if you don't pay the top pay awards to the top people, they'll go and work for somebody else, and your business will lose out. The argument that it's a, a sort of better market for CEO services. The idea, of course, that these are multi-billion pound corporations in some cases, and the decisions that the uh, CEOs will be taking will have billion pound effects in terms of uh, their impact on company value, and thus a um, uh, paying a CEO a few million is actually quite small beer in mm. that con in that context. Then the arguments as to why it's problematic, uh, I think, relate to I think like you know how the governance of pay and how it's set. You've got um, remuneration committees which are stuffed with people who other leading executives, people who are or have been doing similar roles, who, of course, are completely sympathetic uh, to the idea that these people are all absolute geniuses and the companies would fall apart without them. Um, and mm -hmm. so they're naturally inclined to, to ratchet up the, the, uh, the pay for them. You then have the investors signing off on the pay. Again, these are the very highly paid people in the city. Um, it very much suits their interest to believe this argument that, oh, you know, the, the managerial elite are so much more brilliant than everybody else uh, and that they deserve these huge sums of money and that companies would uh, would suffer without them. Uh, and I think, you know, there's maybe not enough scepticism or criticism about just how important uh, these people are to a company and to what extent the um, the person at the top of a company matters mm. in comparison to the contribution of the wider workforce, the wider economic context, that sort of thing. Mm. As you say, um, investors do have some power uh, through their voting rights to uh, have an impact on pay policies and, and so on. And we are starting to see a little bit more shareholder activism in this area, aren't we? 
Well, it, again, it's a, a, a very mixed picture. Our research found that in the past five years, uh, the levels of um, dissent in shareholder votes on CEO pay are actually, you know, they're, they're still very low. You're looking at maybe typically around 10% of um, shareholders will typically vote against a um, or voice their approval for a CEO pay package. So they are generally being waved through with full shareholder approval, despite mm. the, you know, the occasional high profile in instance. I mean, there's been a case at Royal Mail and at, um, at BP in, in recent years where they do get um, where they do get voted down. Mm. So, as you say, uh, the, the, the biggest shareholders tend to be the big investors, the big asset management mm -hmm. firms. And, and of course, as you rightly point out, they are themselves, in a sense, conflicted in that they are very highly uh, remunerated. Um, so, um, that said, there must be some asset managers who you know, take their uh, governance responsibilities more seriously than others in this regard. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that I think that certainly is the case. I think the um, the debate about pay and fairness and, uh, and inequality and that sort of thing, and the concern about the impact it's having on uh, you know, politics, uh, on um, absolute income levels, uh, because so much is going to, the, to to those at the top, is something that people are perhaps a little more alive to in Europe and the UK than in the US. So I think the, you know, the UK pension funds, the UK asset managers do tend to be um, a bit more engaged than their US counterparts. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to venerate any particular uh, individual firms as, as sure. heroes, because I think, you know, it's not a great idea to um, uh, to give them too much credit and, mm. uh, and allow them to get complacent. But for example, um, you may recall the case of the uh, Persimmon CEO, Jeff Fairburn, who got that uh, extraordinary bonus as a result of the share price rocketing, uh, thanks to the government's help to buy scheme. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, Standard Life gave a very good speech at the AGM about how his pay was, you know, went so far beyond acceptable they couldn't, um, they couldn't back it. Hermes have um, done a lot of um, sort of intellectual work uh, on their pay policy and how they're approaching pay. So I think it is, you know, it's a it's a hugely mixed picture. I think some of the um, sort of uh, mainstream institutional investors in the UK are um, uh, are taking it quite seriously. Uh, I think other people who are uh, invested in UK companies, uh, you know, are just not that bothered. If we could look specifically, uh, Luke, now at uh, asset manager pay, um, mm -hmm. as as I've you know, written about on on the blog many times, I know this is a, a subject that interests you as well. You know, all, yep. all, all the academic evidence shows that it's almost impossible to distinguish between skill and luck when it comes to yeah. you know, picking stocks, market timing, and, and, and so on. Um, so w what's your own view on, uh, on pay in the asset management sector, particularly given that you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say that a particular manager has been more skillful than another? 
Mm. I mean, I think that I think that's completely right. I think it's um, it's a, a legacy of um, you know, well, a of course, there's lots and lots of money sloshing around in the uh, in the fund management sector. Um, they're investing billions and billions of pounds on behalf of uh, you know very often ordinary ordinary people with a savings plan or a pension uh, a, a pension fund investment. Um, and if you've got billions and billions of uh, of pounds sloshing around, it's pretty easy to uh, you know to, to help yourself to a, a small slice of that without people necessarily noticing or, or, or getting outraged. Mm. Um, it is an important issue, though. I mean, in the I recall in the FCA Asset Management Market Study, they talked about a saving pot. Uh, losing about 40-odd percent of its value over a lifetime as a result of fund manager fees and charges, most of which are, you know, are um, taken up by the the fund manager's uh, staff costs, paying their high, highly paid staff. So it is something that uh, costs uh, ordinary people and the, the, the ordinary econ- the, the, the real economy a great deal. Um, I think the, the problem is, um, you know, a lot of the things that uh, were, were highlighted in the FCA asset management market study about the, uh, the sort of governance of pension funds, um, uh, you know, p- people who aren't necessarily equipped to hold the asset managers to account and sort of say, you know, why are we being charged these huge fees? Why can't you get um, somebody to make our investments for much lower costs or, you know, get a, you know, a computer to do it or, or something like that. Uh, and then again, you've got the, the conflicts of interest from, say, very well-paid investment consultants. There's, there's a lot of, you know, they're part of the same financial services industry uh, where where pay is very high. Is it really in their interest to say to pension funds, oh, you should be pushing a bit harder on uh, fees and, and charges. You should, you know, you should see what these guys are paying their staff. They don't need to do it. That kind of thing. So, to sort of summarise my point, I think the um, the very high pay in the asset management sector is not necessarily the result of a functioning market. It's that you know, subconscious biases, conflicts of interest, poor governance. Uh, it, it does play a part in, uh, in enabling them to make such large amounts of money. So here in the UK, we've got a manager called Richard Woolner who uh, works for uh, M&G and he has been paid somewhere around 17 to 18 million pounds a year for, for the last few years. And yet we, we've got hedge fund managers who are actually paid considerably more than that um, hmm. And and also, what, what would you say to the argument? Well, in the United States, uh, salaries for asset managers and and hedge fund managers are you know <laughs> several notches uh, high, higher than hmm. than here. <clears throat> well, uh, I thought the, the question is, I mean, could you know? Are, firstly, are um, the the top UK managers going to go to the uh, go to the states or elsewhere if they're not paid uh, these kind of sums of money, and would it actually matter if they did? Certainly, in the um, market for corporate CEOs more broadly, um, there's very little demand from the US for uh, UK managers. It would be a big cultural change. You're going to an entirely different market, and 
the transferability uh, of people based in the UK to the US is not always, um, uh, you know, it's not always apparent. Mm. Um, and then, you know, then there's an argument of, you know, these people are so uniquely skilled that they have to be paid this kind of money because the, um, uh, you know, the organisations would would suffer, their, their current employers would suffer without them. Uh, and, and by association, their uh, their clients would suffer. Again, on you know, I, I think the um, as you say, the evidence on whether investment success is attributable to skill or luck is mixed. Um, I, I also, I don't know. I think it reflects a rather dim view of humanity that there's this tiny pool of people at the top with the ta- with, you know with the top talent. Uh, to do these types of roles in, in investment and in other industries. And then the rest of us have to sit there and be grateful as they, um, you know, for what few crumbs they, they throw us. I think if you're, my take would be that if you're so reliant on these, uh, this tiny number of individuals, that says uh, a, a great deal about how your organization is run, its succession planning, its training and development uh, processes that's, you know, that's not especially positive. I think, um, I, I don't think there are many jobs that people, you know, that there aren't a good number of people capable of being trained up to uh, to do them. Mm. Of course, the big story, uh, Luke, as you know, in the UK uh, in the last few weeks has been this, this whole Neil Woodford business. So mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about... Uh, Sort of uh, uh, Boris Johnson and politics here. I'm talking about the the asset management yeah. industry, um, and yeah. it's been massive. And depending on uh, whose uh, figures you believe, uh, it, it, this equity income fund, his flagship fund, was, was was gated at the beginning of June, and he and yet he's still uh, been mm. uh, taking in you know su- substantial fees um, of of up to a hundred thousand pounds per day. Um, yeah. What, what's your What's your view on that? Well, I think sort of morally and in terms of uh, public perception, I think any sort of right-minded uh, person with an ounce of common sense would uh, feel pretty uneasy about someone who's losing money for people, for other people, making large sums of money for themselves. Um, I think, you know, it's sort of understood that, you know, the value of your investment will go up or down and there's a risk in telling you'll be making a a payment uh, as well as an investment, regardless of the outcome. As I say, I think, you know, the kinds of money, kinds of sums of money we're talking about are going to make people seem uneasy. And again, I think it it comes down to questions around the governance. Obviously, um, the role of Hargreaves Lansdowne has been really Mm. controversial. their platform has been um, channeling savers' money into the Woodford funds. You know, were they not bothered that the terms could lead to a situation like this? They did. They, you know, they clearly didn't sort of foresee that happening. Similarly, Kent County Council, for example, is invested in that. Um, did their advisors or the, the, uh, the, their governance bodies not foresee the possibility of an arrangement like this, whereby Woodford was not? succeeding in an investment sense, but was continuing to take uh, huge amounts of money in fees, clearly, uh, you know, sums of money that go beyond what he needs to, you know, to put food on his table, as it were. Mm. Um, I think that's the issue that's highlighted here. And, you know, it goes back to what I was talking to about the fund management 
uh, in industry more generally that uh, they're paying themselves such huge amounts of money because they're doing extremely uh, complicated technical work. So the um, the the scrutiny from the customers that isn't there in a way it would be if say you went to Tesco tomorrow and suddenly said that all right we can afford to sell you a box of Weetabix for two quid but it's actually 90 quid today yeah yeah Uh, Luke one final question Um, do do you think uh, all this publicity surrounding Neil Woodford and Hargreaves Lansdowne and and so on do do, do you think this is going to prove a watershed moment uh, and that people will really start to question you know a a, what you know how much they're paying for uh, asset management, but but also to question, you know, it, are these people uh, who are put on a pedestal, uh, you know, uh, largely by the financial media, it must be said, um, mm. are, are they really worth that money? Um, really good question. I think on the one hand, you point to things like the the FCA asset management market study, um, the the. Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association, where I used to work doing a lot of um, work on fees and charges and also on the governance of, of pension funds to make them, uh, you know, tougher, better, more effective negotiators. And you'd say, uh, the, you know, the MIFID 2 disclosures, uh, rules on bundling charges are also, mm. I think, kind of a, a related piece. And you would say there's a, there does appear to be a recognition that um, value for money uh, offered by the fund management sector isn't as great as it could be, and that the you know the vast pay packages in the uh, in the sector are a reason for that, and that that people are starting to take action. So I guess that's that's grounds for optimism. On your point about putting people on a, a pedestal, I do sometimes think we never seem to learn. I mean, you know, there's been so many people, whether it's uh, you know in uh, in banking. Uh, you know, health and safety issues at, at the oil companies. Um, some of the uh, you know, big retailers have, um, have had some pretty spectacular disasters uh, in recent years. And then, of course, you know, Wood, Woodford in the uh, in the asset management sector. Um, and all these people who you know been lionised, rewarded with such enormous sums of money, uh, only to be exposed as fallible mm. mortal humans mm. like the rest of us who were you know who <clears throat> were doing well uh, previously but you know maybe not entirely down to their own brilliance perhaps because you know they had the, the, the rub of the green as it were mm. um and i think you know i think everybody's like that even these even these people at the top were you know we're all fallible um we're all at the mercy of wider circumstances some of us get away with it some of us don't but clearly you know lavishing sort of tens of millions uh, of pounds on these people venerating them as uh, as as wealth creators putting them on this pedestal and saying you know they're so much better than everybody else and deserve so much more money um is a fool's endeavor mm. uh, and yet we do seem to uh, seem to keep doing it with you know a spectacular fall from grace a la neil woodford never uh never tends to um prompt to rethink about the sort of hero worship of the people at the top well that's about it for this episode of the tebby podcast 
You've been listening to me, Robin Powell, talking to Luke Hildyard from the High Pay Centre. As always, this programme has been brought to you by Regis Media. You can find out more about Regis Media and the work it does with financial advice firms around the world by visiting the website regismedia.com. That's regismedia.com. If you've not discovered our blog yet, you'll find it at evidenceinvestor.com. That's evidenceinvestor.com. Tebby is also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and of course, on YouTube. Many thanks to Corinne Carr from PeopleNet and to Luke Hildyard from the High Pay Centre. Thank you as well to our producer, James Cresswell. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. And one more thing, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it. We're on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Even better, leave a review. It really would be appreciated. Until next time, goodbye.